Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island Special Edition. Tonight there will be updates on the Grenfell disaster, readers' posts and more. But first, a request from K. Michelle on a very sad case from 2006. This is the story of Marcus Faisal, three-year-old kid that died at the hands of his foster family. So Marcus was born June 24, 2003 to his mother Donna Trevino and father Timothy Dolby. Marcus was one of three children. Uh, He had an older brother Michael and younger sister Peaches. All three children had different fathers. The Trevino house situated in Middleton, Ohio was not the sort of place to bring up children. The house was infested with fleas and stunk of shit and mould. With her abusive boyfriend, Donna would often experience domestic violence and police would often be called. The family were being investigated by child welfare officers when a visit by police on the 29th of September 2005, they noticed severe bruising on Marcus's butt. A few months later, on the 4th of January 2006, Marcus climbed out of his second-storey window and fell off the roof. This resulted in a cut to, to his chin that required several stitches. Three months later, on the 22nd of April 2006, Marcus was found wandering the streets and he was nearly run over by a car. When police were called, Donna Trevino admitted that she didn't know if she could care for her children anymore and that it was getting to be too much for her. Well, this led to her handing the children over to Butler County. Marcus would be placed in the hands of Lifeway for Youth, a private foster care agency contracted by the state. Lifeway was a non-for-profit, faith-based foster care placement service. Now, as a foster care placement agency, they needed to to follow certain rules and standards. They need to carefully check applicants and make sure they're trained correctly in foster care, as well as they also need to do regular checks on placed children. As we often see... Once you let private companies self-regulate, corners can be cut. In Lifeway's case, they often failed to properly check and train applicants that wanted to take foster children in. And they also failed to adequately check on the children they placed. Well, on May the 5th, 2006, with Marcus almost three years old, he was placed with a couple, Liz and Davis, uh, Liz and David Carroll, in Union Township. Now, there's an argument whether Marcus was autistic, but it was known that he was developmentally delayed. His facial features indicated that he has FAS or fetal alcohol syndrome. Now, this is where the child's affected 
after the mother, often an alcoholic, drinks during pregnancy. It was generally agreed that he functioned the same as a 12 to 18 month year old child. So Marcus really needed to be placed with a family that were up to the challenge that a special needs a special needs child would present. In reality, Lifeway for Youth placed Marcus with the Carols without properly vetting them. The Carols already had one other foster child plus a child of their own. Now in June, just before Marcus's third birthday, David, David Carroll is arrested for domestic violence, but eventually the, tr- the charges are dropped. This should have been reported to Lifeway, as required by David Carroll to do. Now as you can see, this is a huge flaw in the system relying on the self-reporting by foster parents to the organisations that are providing foster care services. As soon as Carol was arrested and charged, Lifeway should have been notified by police in a perfect world. Anyway, at around this time, Liz and David Carroll break up for a short period as David did not want to live with foster children. Now it's unclear whether this was before Marcus was placed with them or after, as the Carols did have another foster child at this time. As well as the domestic violence charge, Liz Carroll had a heart condition and David Carroll was bipolar. Both issues should have made it almost impossible for the Carols to take in foster children, let alone such young ones with special needs. Well, David comes back home, but he brings his girlfriend. Now this reminds me of the David Burney case, where he brought his girlfriend to live in his house with his wife still there. This girlfriend was Amy Baker. Now, on the 3rd of August 2006, a caseworker, a caseworker visits the Baker house to check on Marcus. Now, there is some contention as to how many times the caseworkers did actually visit Marcus and actually saw him. There are reports that he was visited weekly, but as caseworkers are overloaded with work, Sometimes they will say they've visited the children when in fact they haven't. As Marcus was a special needs child, he was to be visited weekly. So it's unknown whether or not on the 3rd of August, Marcus was actually seen by the caseworker. The next day, the 4th of August, According to court documents, the Carrolls and Amy Baker prepare to go to a family reunion at Williamson, which is about an hour's drive away. Part of the preparation is they wrap Marcus in a blanket, gaffer tape, gaffer tape him up so he can't move, and they place him in a closet. 
I mean, what the fuck are they thinking? So they then take off to the family reunion for about a day and a half. And on their return, they find Marcus is dead. Now, this is according to court documents. Sometimes, sometime later, David Carroll and Amy Baker then take Marcus's body to the site where a house used to be, it's just the ruins, and only the old stone chimney was still standing. Here, David and Amy burn the body of Marcus, and according to Amy, David returns several times to burn the body more. Eventually, David and Amy, they took the remains that were left and they threw them in the Ohio River. On the 10th of August, caseworkers attend the Carrolls' home to check up on Marcus again. But they're told that Marcus is sick and sleeping and to come back at a better time. The caseworkers walk away. On the 15th of August, Liz Carroll, she calls police and reports that Marcus is missing. She tells them that she went to Julius Park in Anderson Township. She went there with Marcus and three other children. She passed out due to her medical condition and when she awoke, Marcus was gone. Hundreds of people joined in on the official search for Marcus and thousands would be searching for him in surrounding areas. Police quickly scaled back the search the next day as they think the story about Liz being in the park was bullshit as they could not find anyone to corroborate her story and no witnesses saw Marcus in the park that day. Sheriff Department spokesman Steve Barnett said there was nothing nothing sinister about the search of the Carroll's house or the questioning of the parents. He did say it was unusual that no one saw the child. I'm asking that anybody that saw me with my kids or saw me or saw Marcus to please... Contact the authorities. So that was August the 22nd, uh, Liz Carroll holding a press conference pleading for the return of Marcus. So she said, I need help from the public to help my son. Marcus is my son. I know people think foster care is temporary, but please return him to a hospital. She goes on to say, waking up every morning and not having him run to me is very difficult. I am closer than his birth mother to him. Now, it's usually in these press conferences that you can see if someone is genuinely grief-stricken or not. As in the Keisha Whippet case I covered in episode 6, The parents were trying to act distressed and the mother was crying, but no tears. I say guilty as fuck. So we get to August the 27th. 
detectives decide to go to Williamson to see if Marcus was there during the family reunion. When they found out that he hadn't been there, detectives realised that no one outside of the immediate family had seen Marcus alive for weeks. They quickly swooped on Liz and Amy, then served separate subpoenas to appear before a grand jury immediately. Now, it's a race to see who breaks first or who can do a deal. The cops knew their story was bullshit, but they had no real evidence to move on any of the suspects. Amy was the one to break and do a deal. She told the grand jury that Marcus wasn't missing and that he was dead. She went on to say that David and Liz wrapped him up in a blanket and taped him up like a cocoon, then went to their family reunion. When they returned, Marcus was dead. Now, I just want to make it clear that when these this couple were picked up, they faced the grand jury straight away. They had no time to think about a story or anything else like that. So the next one was Liz Carroll. She told the grand jury her bullshit story about how she lost Marcus in the park when she passed out due to her medical condition. When told that detectives knew Marcus didn't attend the family reunion, Liz realised they knew a lot more than she thought and eventually gave them the story about Marcus being taped up in a blanket. But she did go on to tell the grand jury that she was innocent. So with Amy doing a deal to be star witness, prosecutors offered a deal of 15 years to life to Liz and David Carroll. The charges against the Carrolls included murder, involuntary manslaughter, kidnapping, felonious assault, endangering children, and David Carroll was also charged with one count of gross abuse of a corpse. So, as it stood at the time, Liz and David Carroll are charged, and Amy, David's girlfriend, gets an immunity deal to be star witness against them. David took the plea deal, but Liz went to trial. Liz Carroll was found guilty of all charges on February the 21st, 2007. She was sentenced to 54 years to life on February the 22nd, 2007. David Carroll, he got to watch this trial and he ended up accepting a plea deal. He pleaded guilty to murder and gross abuse of a corpse. The judge accepted his plea and sentenced Carroll to 16 years to life in prison. David said that Amy Baker bound Marcus, but he admitted he was present. During the trial, the remains that were left behind by David and Amy at the burn site consisted of 17 little bones that fit in the size of a coffee cup. 
Now, that's not all. In a TV interview from prison, David Carroll told a different story to that of Amy Baker. He said that his wife Liz Carroll was not even present at the time of Marcus's death. He said Liz was out shopping for hours when he and Amy decided to have a bit of boom boom. Amy said she would take care of Marcus and she went downstairs and bound and taped Marcus up and put him in a closet. After a couple of hours of their little boom boom session, David went down to discover that Marcus had passed away. Liz then came home and tried to call police, but she was threatened by Amy that if she did call police, that she would do to her other children what she'd done to Marcus. Well, the three then had to come up with a story and they decided that Liz would claim that she passed out due to her medical condition while visiting the park and that Marcus wandered off. David then told how he and Amy then found an old chimney and burnt the body, then threw the remains in the Ohio River. Now, looking at both sides of the story, I tend to believe that David Carroll's prison story is closer to the truth than the Amy Baker version. I reckon Amy was jealous of the amount of time that David put towards caring for Marcus and that this was the motive for Amy to actually kill Marcus. Now, I'm not saying that David and Liz were the best parents in the world, but I don't think that they would bind a kid up like that. I think Marcus died before the family reunion, but they had to attend the the reunion to try and make things look normal until they could report him missing a week or so later. Now, this is a fault in granting deals to those suspected of crimes. It's almost like the first to do a deal can say whatever they want and the prosecution needs that story to convict others charged. So they have the motivation to create a case around what their star witness says. In the end, we don't know what really happened to cause the death of Marcus. Two people go to prison, one goes to trial and gets a long sentence, the other accepts the plea deal and gets 16 years, while the third offender gets off totally free with no time inside. If it is true that Liz was not there and that David was unaware that Amy had killed Marcus, then there is no justice in this case at all. In fact, the justice is totally ass about. To me, Amy Baker is just a minger. Liz and David are scumbags who shouldn't have had foster children in the first place. And that brings me to Lifeway for Youth. They placed Marcus in the care of the Carols. 
product of a system that pays organisation money per child to put them into a foster home and pays the parents that take them in. Now, there are new laws that have been brought in to make organisation organisations like Lifeway do proper due diligence in placing children into foster homes. So, in the end, poor little Marcus never, ever had a chance. Only three years old and he'd been subjected to so much shit in his life. Please go to Facebook or Twitter and uh, we can discuss this further. So next on the list is an update on the Grenfell disaster. Look, there's so much happening with Grenfell. I wanted to do a bit more of a, a broad coverage this week on updates. But instead, I'll read from the Grenfell Action Group website in regards to the inquiry. The website says... In their infinite wisdom and supreme arrogance, what else could we expect of them? The British government have announced, without any attempt at public consultation or any attempt to consider the sensitivities of the bereaved who lost their loved ones in the Grenfell Tower Inferno, or of those fortunate enough to have miraculously survived it, the appointment of retired judge Sir Martin Moore Bick, to lead the Grenfell Inquiry. Sir Ken Knight has been named as chair of the new panel, looking at safety. A man who previously opposed fitting sprinklers in tower blocks and recommended £2 million in cuts to the fire service. The secretary to the inquiry, has been named as Mark Fisher CBE, who was formerly Social Justice Director at the DWP, responsible for the prevention of multiple disadvantage and long-term welfare dependency, and was previously Job Seekers and Skills Director at the DWP, responsible for designing and delivering the work program. The Radical Housing Network said, The appointment of Sir Martin Morbick as the judge in the Grenfell Inquiry is deeply distressing. Sir Morbick has a track record of facilitating the social cleansing of London, approving Westminster Council's decision to house a single mother with five children in Milton Keynes, 50 miles away from her family and networks, a decision later overturned by the Supreme Court. The government are clearly preparing a stitch-up, trying to put a judge at the heart of the establishment in charge of the inquiry. Who supports the inhumane housing policies which have led to Grenfell? How can we have faith in this panel to deliver the protections we need? These appointments are yet further evidence that the establishment is not committed to providing justice for Grenfell residents and are unwilling to put in place measures which will prevent a tragedy of this enormity from happening again. Pilgrim Tucker 
who worked for a while with the Grenfell Action Group and is continuing to support local residents, added, Residents from Lancaster West Estate asked Theresa May, that's the UK Prime Minister, to involve them in the decision-making on the Grenfell Inquiry. In appointing Sir Martin Moore Bick, she has ignored them and appointed a completely inappropriate judge. We have no faith that this inquiry will produce justice. On Sajid Javid's letter on the 28th of June, claiming that all residents made homeless by the Grenfell catastrophe will be permanently rehoused in social housing at social rent, the Radical Housing Network said, after over two weeks of uncertainty uncertainty and flip-flopping, it is good that the authorities have committed to housing all those made homeless by the fire, regardless of tenure, in permanent social housing at social rent. This is the absolute minimum that should be provided for the people who have lost so much. However, after appearing to promise homes in the borough, the government have backtracked. People housed in neighbouring boroughs could end up living many miles away from their jobs, families and communities. We know Kensington and Chelsea Council could afford local homes if they wanted to. In a statement, Lancaster West Estate residents also responded, Residents are shocked and disappointed at Theresa May's failed promises on Grenfell Tower fire inquiry. Residents in the estate surrounding Grenfell Tower expressed disappointment at Theresa May's failure to consult them on the public inquiry into the fire, despite her previous promises to include them. Resident Amanda Fernandez said, Prime Minister Theresa May did not even respond to our email requesting direct involvement on the establishment of the public inquiry. She has already appointed a judge who has told us the inquiry will be very narrow. She promised to consult us on this, but has completely gone back on that promise. We are deeply disappointed. Without consulting residents, May has started appointing establishment figures residents feel are not appropriate, compromising the scope of the investigation from the start. Residents say trust and confidence in the government and the the inquiry are now very low, and residents are demanding the appointment of the right people to lead this inquiry in order to prevent the same failures being repeated again. We now have a complete lack of confidence in the inquiry's ability to address the history of negligence that led to the fire or the authorities' failures in the aftermath of the fire. For the truth to emerge and justice to be done, we must be involved in the shaping of this inquiry, said Ms. Fernandez. So it looks like the government wants complete control on the terms and reference for the inquiry. Can they be trusted? I don't think so. 
Okay, so next. Now, I was going to talk about Rebecca Papali tonight. Now, she was convicted of the racially motivated kidnapping, torture and murder of a 14-year-old, Cleon Jackman, in Perth. Now, she served only 15 years of a 17-and-a-half-year sentence before being deported back to New Zealand. Now, I'd like to do more research on her and the crime, and I think it deserves a full episode. So, so thanks, Lindy, for the suggestion. And one more message to Eamon Sharabim. Tune in soon, as I'm going to tell the world about what you and your scumbag family did once the Independent Commission Against Corruption hearings are finished. So, let's go on to readers' comments. Alison Shields. Cambo's research and delivery are well done. I tip my hat to him. Well, I tip my hat back to you, Alison. Thank you very much. We've got Jennifer Edmondson Swider. The reason Cambo Ford is one of my all-time favourite podcasters. He's freaking hilarious. He'll say exactly what the situation calls for. And a plus for me is I've learned cool Aussie terms to amaze and amuse family and friends. Thanks, Cambo. Well, thanks, Jennifer. I'm glad I've been able to educate some people out there and show them a bit of Australian culture. I'd like everyone to comment on Facebook or Twitter who thinks my humour is as dry as a dead dingo's donger. Next, we've got Jerry. She says, I'm just the bloody intern who checks things at 6.30am. Well, thanks, Jerry. I posted something the other day, but I couldn't find it. It was how all the true crime islanders are fantastic and they are the reason the island exists. So don't forget this is your island and comment as you see fit. Now, I wasn't sure if it popped up. So you may sometimes get a message saying, please look at Facebook. I think something's missing. Anyway, Maria Ortiz. Hi, Cambo. You already know I'm a big fan of yours. Your stories are always well-researched and interesting. Your sense of humour comes through often which I really like, as humour in life is a necessity. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Maria. I can never keep anything formal or too serious. I hope this podcast makes you feel like you're sitting with me in a deck chair, having a beer, while I tell you a story. Thanks, Maria. Sorry for nearly making you crash your car, Sanger, with the spank bank comment. And also, thank you all for not going mental over sword and scale this week. Jason, yes, I will one day be Prime Minister of Australia. I just need a few more listeners, so everyone spread the word. If people you talk to don't know what a podcast is, educate them. Everyone has a phone that can play them, so there's no excuse. Erica, It may be too wet for dick chairs in Melbourne, but the prom is still on, Jason. And Jason, I hope you're not trying to sell counterfeit true crime island wear. That hat, 
It looks like a copy. James and the chili dick. Yes, true. Scrub your hands after chopping chilies. And the other James? Maybe tell us more about your nurse stories and spicing up the patient's manhoods with wasabi and deep heat. No need to post photos. Sanger's out of batteries, apparently. Now, Sanger says, kind of weird how some people get all wanky over podcast hosts. What the fuck is all that about? Jason replies "It's that his missus melts when she hears Tyler Allen. Now, that's Tyler Allen from Minds of Madness, and that's another podcast you need to check out. Senga says she's going to murder me if I bring up the bit about Idris Elba and the other bit about her running out of batteries. So I'm not going to talk about that at all. Ariel from Alaska, she says Cambo is besto. Cheers, Ariel. And everyone check out her Murder Under the Midnight Sun podcast. It's a great podcast that focuses mainly on local crimes but she is branching out, and local as in Alaska. Lainey jumped into the thread asking why she's everyone's favourite podcaster. You know why, so we don't have to tell you. Go check out her podcast, The True Crime Fan Club. It's really good. Tony, he says that True Crime Island is not just another true crime podcast. And it's and that it's one of the best. Good on you, Tony. I put that line in there. It seems to be so many true crime podcasts now. Listeners are spoiled for choice and should be able to find something that they like. The Kitchen Sink podcast is a new one to me. Search on SoundCloud for it. The latest episode about the Lafferty brothers is really good. Give it a whirl. Siobhan. Thanks for the heads up on the island sale, and Jason found one as well. Which brings me to Patreon. For a little, as little as 25 cents an episode, you can contribute financially to the island so we can buy an island for real. Thanks to Senga that is up to pledge and gets a new gold deck chair. Hi to Carol, Lauren and Nina for becoming new Patreons, and Kevin who has joined the ranks. Now, True Crime Island will remain commercial-free other than the mentions of other uh, other podcasts, but I will put their promos at the end of the show. But you don't have to throw money at me to support the show. Just spread the word. Get on Facebook or Twitter. Show someone you love how to download podcasts. If you have iTunes, then rate and review. It does help. I must say that I need to catch up on some iTunes reviews, so next next week be sure to tune in and I'll read some out. I upload photos to Instagram, which is at True Crime Island, and that's the same as my Twitter handle. I do have shirts and mugs at my merch store, so click on the link on my website, which is www.truecrimeisland.com. There's also a link to Merch and Patreon. I do take PayPal as well. Use cambo at truecrimeisland.com if you want to send a one-off donation to the island. Shags, 
stubby holders are on the way as well. And I've got stickers that will be sent to Patreon members very soon. Now, they won't be ready until the end of August, Shag, so keep your beer in the fridge. I want a, I want to give a big shout-out to Ed Denzel again. He has the Unfound podcast. This is one amazing podcast for the amount of effort he puts in. And he also just interviewed me. And sorry for all the ums and ahs, but thank you very much, Ed. Get down to his Facebook and have a listen. So that's about all. After I sign off, there will be a promo for the new Aussie podcast, True Crime Sisters. Give it a listen. It's well-researched, and I think you'll like it. So I'm your host, Cambo. This has been a True Crime Island special edition. And don't forget to delete your browser history. Hi guys, this is Harry and Bill and we're the True Crime Sisters. We're two New Zealand-born, Australian-raised sisters with a weekly podcast exploring Australian and New Zealand's darkest true crime cases. Additionally, I also release a weekly minisode about Australian cases that are currently unsolved with the hopes of raising awareness to the people who still haven't received justice. If you love true crime, we would love you to head over to our podcast and if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe. We aim to present well-researched and victim-sensitive coverage of interesting cases and we have a very real passion for what we're doing. That's the True Crime Sisters podcast. Thank you and please stay safe.